Can fashion retail supply chain be reimagined and rebuilt? Or are we destined to live in a world where, according to National Geographic, almost half a trillion dollars worth of clothing becomes landfill each year? Can the economics and environics of retail ever happily coexist? I'm Doug Stevens, and in episode two of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's new podcast series on redesigning the retail industry presented by Brookfield Properties, I investigate whether fashion supply chain can overcome global disruption while innovating its practices to reflect increasingly scarce resources and respecting the people and planetary boundaries it impacts. The question is, have we traveled too far down this road to turn back? Or can we redeem ourselves if we act now? The Oxford Dictionary defines the term black swan as meaning an unpredictable or unforeseen event, typically one with extreme consequences. Using that definition, it could easily be argued that COVID-19, although extreme in its consequences, is not a black swan at all. In fact, over the last several decades, a veritable parade of experts has predicted just such a pandemic and even its likely health and economic impacts, many of which are now playing out. The reality is that many nations simply chose to disregard those warnings. From the belching power stations of China to the burning forests of Brazil, more greenhouse gases than ever are being added to the air we breathe. New research by the United Nations Environment Programme shows emissions are climbing and the world is lacking the collective political will to do anything about it. Hardly a black swan. Climate change has been more like a steadily advancing freight train barreling toward a world stubbornly standing in its path. And to a worrying extent, it's the retail and fashion industries that have been driving the train. From cradle to grave... Fashion is rife with consequences for the planet, from the globalization of supply chains to the nature of materials used to the garment manufacturing processes themselves, never mind the inevitable waste produced by a disposable society. For all these reasons, the retail and fashion industries are among the world's worst polluters. And with a growing global middle class hungry for more, global apparel sales are set to triple by 2050. The question is why? Why are we as an industry so slow to take action when the outcomes of our current behaviors are clearly presenting themselves? Why is it that there's been so little widespread action to curb the impacts of an industry run amok? And moreover, how did we get to this point in the first place? What pre-existing condition, if you will, led us to this environmental precipice? Well, I think that pre-existing condition has been in place for a long, long time. Uh, almost as if it were normalized. And that, that is a system, a, a supply chain that uh, depended on lowest cost sourcing, long lead times, and high volume. The goal was to, to really minimize the sort of incoming cost or maybe maximize the incoming margin to cushion considerable uncertainties you know, in the business of fashion. That's John Thorbeck. John is the chairman of Change Capital, a company that helps brands to reimagine their supply chain strategies. John is widely regarded as an oracle on supply chain efficiency and speed to market. I caught up with him from his home in California. I really thought it was a 50-year uh, trend in kind of 
moving offshore and maybe finding cheaper sources. But I've really had my eyes opened up on that in a book called uh, Empire of Cotton, which was written by a fellow named uh, Sven Becker at, at Harvard University. And in that story, he really talks about textiles as the school for globalization. It was really the first globalized industry and today is the most globalized industry. What I didn't realize was how animated it is, how driven it is by finding lowest cost labor and, and, and manufacturing. So to answer the question, it's, it's been a trend of longstanding, which means it's deeply embedded in how this industry operates. But I think it's really being confronted by its endpoints. So in actual fact, the problems inherent in today's supply chains, particularly in the fashion industry, are not a 20th century phenomenon. Their roots extend hundreds of years into the past with the goal today, just as it was then, being a relentless drive to lower cost, no matter the price exacted on the planet or humanity. And that raises an important and perhaps obvious question with cost an essential component of competitiveness, will retail companies ever risk increasing costs in the interest of sustainability? According to Thorbeck, it's a false choice. In fact, he says reimagining the supply chain for outcomes other than lowest cost produce a surprising upside. That upside is very significant. And I believe that upside is, is under, underestimated. And we're, you know, we're making the case that this is as much as 30% of the total market capitalization of a retailer. 30% of market capitalization simply by rethinking their supply chain? I can't think of many brands that would turn that down. But as Thorbeck points out, reaping such gains requires focusing on a completely different key economic driver. That being uncertainty. So the supply chain of the future is something that is really built more for uncertainty because the costs of uncertainty have only gone up. And those costs of uncertainty far exceed the cost of labor and the cost of materials and the cost of, of manufacturing. So a system that is built for speed and flexibility takes into account not just total cost, but also the upside in terms of total profitability. It made sense. By chasing lowest cost production, brands, retailers, and their manufacturing partners dramatically increase the amount of capital they're putting at risk. They're literally building risk into the model by focusing almost entirely on front-end cost without considering the potentially negative back-end consequences, the risk of miscalculating trends, of carrying overstock and the resulting markdowns, or returns, all an increasing cost in a fashion retail market that offers little forgiveness for mistakes. Well, we really have to look at, you know, the role of the supply chain and the attributes or the mission it serves. And for many years, the mission it serves is to deliver goods on time at good quality at, at lowest cost. And, you know, that has you could call it an arbitrage. If it, it, let's take Nike for an example. Nike um, arbitraged uh, its supply chain by moving over to Asia before its competitors in the U.S. Uh, and in Germany. 
And so they had a cost advantage that they were able to utilize and to invest in marketing, in uh, market design. And slowly but surely, that cost arbitrage has been shrinking so that now it's almost parity. So let's, you know, that's true for Nike, but it's also true for, um, you know, an industry in general. So what is the new arbitrage? Where is the new advantage? Well, I don't think there's been enough work done on the economics of speed and flexibility. So how does a supply chain get rebuilt for speed and flexibility? One might assume the answer is to simply digitize it. Not entirely, according to Thorbeck. It's helpful. It provides visibility. It provides connectivity. And it provides a little more of a window into demand. But it it doesn't necessarily represent process change so that we're taking a five-month order cycle and reducing it down less than 30 days. So that's the magnitude of change. So digitizing is important, um, but you want to digitize the right process. You want to be digitizing for speed and flexibility. What we can learn from Zara is the fact that they've taken risk out of a high-risk business. And I think we focus more on the fact that they have a cycle for speed, which allows them to bring fashion into stores more frequently and flow those goods more often, therefore getting more store visits. But, and of course, that leads to higher margins and fewer markdowns. All of that is very positive. But really, they're doing that at less risk. And that is the explanation of why they're market value is so high. So if they really are a system to manage risk, we can learn from that. It isn't something that is tied to their customer or even to a particular market segment. So while digitizing is a good thing, it's only truly valuable if the entire buying cycle and process is also innovated. Thorbeck is quick to point out, however, that while Zara provides a good source of learnings, The goal of other retailers need not be to become Zara. Sometimes people think that a recommendation is to be like Zara. And I think that's hard for a lot of retailers to accept. feels very imitative. And I I don't recommend that. In fact, what I find so interesting is even though Zara owns 13 of its own factories in Spain and in Southern Europe, Zara itself has an enormous upside opportunity in their global sourcing for speed and flexibility. So the kind of model we're talking about, the supply chain of the future, applies to Zara as much as it applies to everyone else. And I think globalizing speed and flexibility is, um, is, is sort of that new arbitrage where there can be tremendous cost advantage. That's what's exciting about the industry, is the industry actually can be uh, much more productive and, I think, much more exciting for, uh, for the future. My conversation with John Thorbeck made it clear that a rethinking of the supply chain, moving away from cost as a driver and instead incorporating speed and flexibility, is not only possible, 
but that progressive brands are indeed doing just that, and in the process, reducing waste while improving profitability. That led me to wonder if the true problem might be the materials that are being used to make the products carried through those supply chains. Has our reliance on petroleum-based synthetic materials simply become an impossible habit to break? Are we destined to continue our use of these materials in the absence of viable alternatives? I was told if I really want answers to these questions, then there was one key person that I needed to speak to. Um, well, I think in one sentence, I guess we're just living in the biggest design mistake ever. You know, once you step back and you look at how we're making things, not necessarily just in fashion, but, you know, in every industry, um, by extracting and and taking things, growing things with a lot of pesticides and toxic materials that you chuck on it um, without respecting planetary boundaries. Nina Morenzi is the founder of The Sustainable Angle, a not-for-profit that initiates and supports projects with a focus on sustainability in fashion and textiles and related industries. She's also the founder of the Future Fabrics Expo, the largest dedicated showcase of globally sourced, commercially available, sustainable and responsibly produced fabrics and materials. And it really was to create an organization that would initiate and support projects that would help um, uh, anything that would lower the environmental impact of industry and society. So it's very broadly formulated. And so I researched uh, materials, uh, design, etc. And it was obvious that um, about 60 to 70% of the impact of most fashion brands, sort of premium to luxury brands, came from the materials they were using. And I thought that was quite striking because, you know, that's a huge chunk of a product. And if you found a solution there, then clearly you would, you know, make massive headway in terms of lowering the impact. And we have now about uh, seven or 8,000 materials on show at the last Future Fabrics Expo which was um, shown to about 3,000 visitors. Wait a minute. What did she say? And we have now about uh, seven or 8,000 materials on show. Yep, that's what I heard. Seven to 8,000 alternative and sustainable materials. Well, if you're looking at, you know, sort of the, the, the fibers that are used for fashion and you kind of break it down to the different ones without going into too much detail, you can look at it sort of biological uh, fibers, natural fibers, and you can look at the more synthetic and technical fibers. And you just have to try and make sure that whatever you're doing, that, um, as I said before, the natural materials can go back into nature unpolluted and become feedstock for the next. Um, and in synthetics and, and um, such as polyester and um, nylons, etc., um, those materials really should just not be used. We need to think about a materials revolution where anything that is coming from petrochemicals that is oil-based should just not continue to be used and be made. And of course, we all know now we have a huge plastics problem and we need to make sure that in fashion, at least, we've got better materials that we're using. So either we're talking about recycled materials, that is, of course, only a transition. It shouldn't be understood as recycled polyester is now the solution to everything that we have. It isn't. And even ocean plastics, which are wonderful, where you're taking out, you know, plastics from plastic bottles from the beaches and you're making yarn out of it again and you have a fantastic uh, shoe that is now made from recycled ocean plastics. That only is a transition. What we need to try and find is materials that are 
in essence, can be grown without using fertile soil because fertile soil has to be used for food eventually if we're coming up to about 10 billion people by mid-century. You need to try and make sure that it's not reliant on fresh water because fresh water needs to be used for drinking, not for making clothes or fibers for making clothes. So you need to uh, try and have fibers that are rain-fed you need to try and have fibers that are not reliant on pesticides and insecticides that are terribly polluting our waterways. So if you're looking at it this way, then everything starts to make a lot more sense. This presents another nagging question. If there are seven to 8,000 sustainable alternative fibers, why then are we so reliant on synthetics? According to the New York Times, 60% of the fibers used are synthetic. And 85% of it ends up as garbage that may take hundreds, if not thousands of years to decompose. Now a word from our sponsor, Brookfield Properties' Meredith Darnall, Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence and Strategy, who shares retail insights from the real estate perspective. So one of the great learnings coming out of COVID is physical retail is still going to be key. It's one of the most meaningful touch points to the consumer, and it's still the most cost-efficient base to fulfill orders, both those that are made in store, of course, but also those that are occurring online. It must be the designers, I thought. Perhaps they were the obstacle to change. Turns out, nothing could be further from the truth. This is the Future Fabrics Expo. Over a thousand designers, retailers and buyers are eager to sample the surprising and very sustainable fabrics on show here. Well, I guess that was one of the most amazing uh, experiences that we always had. And that was that anytime we showed it to a designer, the first thing they would say is they were just totally, you know, inspired and immediately wanted to work with the things that they saw. So they were... uh, I guess that's the beauty of being a creative person. You know, they're they're always looking for a new thing that they could make or make better and improve. And so showing them a material that is not polluting is just, you know, a no-brainer. According to Morenzi, the stopping block wasn't designer interest, but something else entirely. Well, I think initially there was just simply not, the awareness just wasn't there. Second, I would say there was just not, you know, as we talked before, if you're a creative person, you want to see and experience and touch things. That's how kind of the, the the process starts. And that just was very difficult to find this stuff. I mean, now it's much more prevalent, but the main trade first didn't really show this. They had their head a bit in the sand and just like, oh, please, anything green and sustainable, go away, leave me alone. It's too complex, complicated. But that has changed. So if there are alternative materials and designers who want to work with them, I suspected that this all came back, as it often does, to the almighty dollar. It had to be a cost issue with these alternative materials. Again, were brands simply being forced to choose between low cost and sustainability? Yeah, I, I guess it's it's a false choice because at the end of the day, I think any brand that hasn't paid attention to this is just simply not going to be around anymore in the next couple of years for several reasons. And One is that simply customers are going to be, you know, figuring out that this is just awful to wear that stuff. Who wants, you know, who wants to go to a beach which is littered with plastic bottles? And so that's one thing. Secondly, I think um, from an economic point of view, it will be very expensive to use fibers that are reliant on fresh water and fertile soil because that's going to be used for food. So eventually you need to diversify your portfolio of fibers. If you don't do that, you're going to be hit by 
very high prices of the ingredients that you use for your fashion product. To establish new supply chains take a long time. If you haven't started yet, that's going to be quite tricky. And, you know, so there's a very clear uh, rationale here. So if supply chains can be rethought and rebuilt and alternative and sustainable materials number in the thousands and designers are eager to work with them, what's the problem? Why is fashion steadfast in its wasteful ways? With the list of suspects shortening, I thought it must be the manufacturing processes themselves that are holding the industry back from addressing climate change. Perhaps there's simply an inability for brands to break free from unsustainable manufacturing processes. Maybe that was the culprit. Not so, according to Dio Kurosawa. He's one of the founding partners of the Bear Scouts, an organization that assists brands with the implementation of innovative, sustainable manufacturing practices, and someone that has worked in the denim industry for over 20 years. We really see brands as you know, architects, you know, they, with, without the supply chain, they have great ideas, but they can't come to fruition without them. So what we wanted to make sure is that whatever they created was created in a way that's not going to have a negative impact on the environment. I have to admit, at this point, part of me was expecting Kurosawa to go deep into the nuance of how they work with brands to influence the manufacturing process. But early into our conversation, he offered a different and totally unexpected perspective. I mean, at the end of the day, capitalism requires inequality. You know, if, it, if that doesn't exist, then, you know, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, if I can offer the same product that you can offer and I can offer it to someone at a cheaper rate, then I'm probably going to sell better than you are. But who are those right. people who are taking a pinch on that? These are some of Bangladesh's garments workers demanding better wages. Their salaries are some of the lowest in the world. There have been protests like these across the country for the past week. Some of them have been I mean, if you think about Bangladesh, the average worker is making $95 a month. $95 a month. If you're, if you're comfortable with someone making your, your clothing at $95 a month, you would also should say, I'm comfortable making $95 a month. And, and, and of course, the easy thing to say is that, okay, but Bangladesh, they don't, you know, their, their cost of living isn't as high as ours. But, you know, are they not deserving of the same type of lifestyle that we want? I mean, Americans, I mean, I'm American, so I, I feel obligated to say this. Americans believe in, you know, democracy and freeing people. Um, why, why, why do they not deserve the same freedom? It was then that something struck me. Perhaps we've got this all wrong. Maybe government, the retail industry, and even we, the consumer, were framing the issue incorrectly. Maybe climate change wasn't the problem at all, but merely a symptom of a far greater and more endemic historical problem. Perhaps what we're seeing as an environmental issue is really a human rights problem fueled by economic and social inequality. The question is, if that's true, can we change it? I mean, of course it's possible. If you think about West Virginia, I always use this as a sort of example. West Virginia is full of coal miners or ex-coal miners. I read a couple of years ago that coders from Silicon Valley were going to West Virginia to teach these ex-coal miners how to code. They found that a similar lifestyle exists. Obviously, a coder is, in, a, in, a, in my mind, I picture them in a dark room, <laughs> coding away, looking at a, a dark screen with you know, zeros and ones or however it works. And, and I guess you know, that sort of you know, tunnel vision is, is similar to a coal miner. I think we have to pull people out of the position where they're in. 
if we allow people to exist in, in, the, in, in a place that we're comfortable with them existing in because it suits our needs, then of course nothing will ever change. It also seemed to me that while I'm able to know lots about the products I find on my grocer's shelves, the same isn't true of apparel in terms of how, where, and who produces it. Why, I wonder, aren't we able to be as informed about what we put on our bodies as we are about what we put in our bodies? In other words, should we treat fashion more like food? 100%. 100%. Look, there's a, I use the analogy of a, a company called Fujicate. I love Fujicate. When I'm in America, it's an app that allows you to scan the barcodes at the grocery store, and it gives you a ranking of A to F, and it tells you why you should eat this product or why you shouldn't eat this product. But your skin, <laughs> it's an organism. If you put clothing on your skin and that clothing is you know, uh, artificial, a lot of people break out from this. Um, forget the health issues that come with the creation of these things. I've been, I've taken helicopters in the interiors of countries to, to reach manufacturing production units because the roads weren't safe to get to the manufacturer. And I've seen blue water around denim factories that supply the locals with their drinking water. So is it a health issue? Absolutely. It's a health issue. I've really struggled to, re to, to try and understand why there hasn't been strong legislation around the fashion industry, around you know, manufacturing, transparency. There is the ability to place, um, yeah, for lack of better words, let's say tags or, or certain instruments in fabric and trace like where the fabric came from, step by step, scanning in, scanning out, scanning in, scanning out, even to the afterlife of the, the production. But why don't we trace and track these things? Because the technology is there, but there is no requirement to make that happen. When people talk about transparency, it sounds like, oh, we're going to tell everyone, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's a false thought. It's a false thought because most Re, uh, retailers or brands visit their factory on average maybe four times a year, if at all. So how do they know what's happening at the factory level? How do they know, you know, where their garments were really made? Who really touched their garments? You know, where, where were things produced? So Fujicate and the food industry, those are perfect examples of the ways in which we can change the fashion industry if we're willing to do so. But there has to be, you know, a sort of push from the government's bodies, in my opinion. So what does apparel manufacturing done right look like? Kurosawa points to a manufacturing company called Cytex as one example. In manufacturing, there's a lot of waste. And waste doesn't come from just, you know, people think of waste as, you know, the, the offcuts from patterns or from materials. There's loads of sludge, loads of muck, you know, crap, you know, all the, the runoff. Um, Cytex is actually taking all of this sludge and muck and creating bricks, using those bricks then to create houses for factory workers. They are now opened up a new facility in Los Angeles. So, you know, what, this is the, these are the types of things that we'd like to see our supply chain partners do. You know, you're not asked to do it, but you're so much sexier to a brand or a retailer when you do things like this, because the, the whole story is so much better, especially when we're in this whole capitalist environment where we have to sell a product. Isn't it nicer to know that, oh, I got this t-shirt. It's from the offcuts of this and that. It's all, it's all circular. It's, it's not you know, coming from cotton. It's not you know, impacting the environment. It's all based on things that are already here. Those types of initiatives we love and endorse as much as possible. 
What was starting to become clear is that we're trying to solve the symptoms of an environmental pandemic without addressing the underlying disease, inequality and public health. In other words, what we really have is a public health crisis resulting from massive global inequality. And that if we agree that no one should be working for $95 a month, then a lot of the other issues may begin to take care of themselves. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if, if you have, the, if you have uh, disposable income, if you're a Bangladeshi uh, garment worker and you're living, I mean, if you think about it in the, in the 70s, in the 80s in, in America, maybe even Canada, steel mills, right? Steel mills basically created work for, you know, people of color, of, you know, people who didn't go to university, etc. They could have a house, they had a car, they raised a family, they had more than two kids, it, you know, they could send their kids to university because they had a very decent salary, right? If they have a decent salary, they go to church, maybe they give to causes, maybe they invest in, you know, their house, their community, etc. If you are a $95 a month paid factory worker, how are you reinvesting your, your wealth, if you want to call it wealth, back into your community? You, you can't. Mm -hmm. So could the problem plaguing efforts to thwart climate change stem from the fact that we're chasing the wrong problem? The truth is, we currently live in a world where a portion of humankind lives to such levels of excess that in order to feed their insatiable appetite for more, they rob the other portion of humanity of their resources. Worse yet, that other portion of humanity lives in such abject poverty that they have little choice but to bend to the will of their rich cohabitants, selling their land, water, and labor for pennies. And as long as that continues... We have an insurmountable problem, because how do you convince a garment worker earning $95 per month that her primary concern ought to be the quality of the air she breathes or the cleanliness of the oceans? The question is, have we traveled too far down this road of inequality to turn back? Or can we redeem ourselves by acting now? Well, everything is possible. I'm a very optimistic human being. So I think when you ask me if it's possible, then of course, I'm, I'm, I'm quickly, uh, I feel like I must say yes. At the same time, it, it, there has to be a win for both parties, right? And what I mean by that is we are in a capitalist society. Capitalism requires inequality. Inequality basically means someone suffers while another wins, right? If we are willing to reform capitalism, <laughs> then it's possible. And in order to do so, we really have to look at people over profits. Is that, is that is, again, people over profits? And if I say capitalism, <laughs> those two things just don't sound right together. I feel, and what we try to do, as I said, we try to make it sexy for retailers to involve themselves in environmental issues. Um, sexy, but also profitable. I'm not looking for a utopia where, you know, capitalism shifts to be, you know, considered like, well, let's make everything equal. Let's consider, you know, all the things that we haven't considered, especially the environment. I'm not looking for that. What I, what I believe is that we have to bring the inequality a gap. We have to bridge that, we have to, you know, decrease that as much as possible. If we can decrease that as much as possible, then we can look at other elements outside of just people. We can look at the planet as well. 
So we have the power to rethink our supply chains, to rebuild them for agility and flexibility over cost, and in doing so, reap even greater profits. We have the availability of thousands of alternative materials that are both sustainable, beautiful, and cost-effective. And we have the capacity to shift production to manufacturers who leave no impact and indeed even improve the lives of the communities they operate in. But until we begin calling this crisis what it really is, a public health crisis, and treating its underlying cause, economic inequality, we will continue down the tracks, hurtling toward our own extinction. The good news is that it's not too late to change. The retail industry has the ability to course correct. There are no excuses. What we need is simply the collective will to do so. If you've enjoyed this episode of Retail Reborn, created by the Business of Fashion and presented by Brookfield Properties, subscribe to the BOF podcast to receive all future episodes in our six-part series. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens. Doug Stevens.